Let's turn then to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42. We'll just be reading the first four verses today from this chapter. These first, I believe, eight um, verses or nine of Isaiah chapter 42 are often referred to as the first of four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. This being the first one, it comes on the heels, of course, of chapter 41. God has just now finished speaking to Israel through Isaiah of the futility and the nothingness, we might say, of idols. And he's turning our attention now in, in chapter 42 from, from the emptiness and the nothingness of an idol. And now he tells us in these first few words, Behold my servant. And so clearly he's changing the subject from idols to, I believe, the Lord Jesus Christ in anticipation of his coming. Of course, we know in Isaiah, the Old Testament days, he hasn't come as of yet, but he had promised he would, and God tells us about him. God tells his people what to expect when his servant would come. And so let's read together the first four verses. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. I want to speak to you today. If we had a title for the thought, it would simply be the first three words of the first verse, Behold my servant. And I want to begin today, and if you'll... I don't want to try your patience, but I, I would like to read to you an article that I came across written by a man named Jordan Chambly. This article was posted on the American Family Radio website, and I want to read it to you today. I believe it will set a good foundation for our comments and our remarks. The article begins, The wind pummeled the young boy like an icy fist as he walked down the streets of London with the snow flying in his face and prying into his thick coat. He leaned forward into the wind, hands in his trouser pockets for what little warmth they could find. He had to hear something, anything, from God. The cold of winter was nothing compared to the pangs of longing inside him. Young Charles Haddon Spurgeon longed to be rid of the guilt of his sins. Then the writer here says, let's skip ahead in time a bit. Spurgeon began preaching at 16 years old and a few years later became the pastor at the Park Street Chapel in London. Under his leadership, the church membership grew so much that the building had to be enlarged twice. Finally, they moved to another building and the church was renamed the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which was to be the largest church in the world at the time. Often he would have to ask his congregation to stay home from the Sunday evening meetings so that lost people who lined up in the streets could come inside to hear him. Not only did he preach, but he also wrote many books, 
published a periodical called The Sword and the Trial, ran an orphanage, counseled other pastors, and oversaw a college for ministers. Those who were concerned tried to convince him to ease off of the work for his health, but he replied, We ministers are not to be living specimens of men well-preserved, but living sacrifices whose lot it is to be consumed. Many of us today have a desire to serve the Lord in this way, to lay everything on the table and give our whole lives to the furthering of God's kingdom. But often when it comes down to action, either circumstances or our own fears hinder us from this kind of service. How was Spurgeon enabled to be so, to so effectively spread the word of God? What was it about him that attracted so many to listen to his words even today? Well, let's go back to where Spurgeon himself said it all began. In his early years, we see a very different Spurgeon than the immortalized preacher he is known as today. As a young boy living in England among religious relatives, his own father a minister, Spurgeon grew up watching the lives of Christians around him. He knew and understood long theological terms and was very religious himself, but there was something in the lives of the Christians around him that he knew he didn't have, peace with God. Later he would describe this time in his own autobiography, and now in his own words, He had a clear and sharp sense of the justice of God. Sin, whatever it might be to other people, became to me me an intolerable burden. It was not so much that I feared hell, but that I feared sin. I knew myself to be so horribly guilty that I remember feeling that if God did not punish me for sin, he ought to do so. I felt that the judge of all the earth ought to condemn such such sin as mine. I sat on the judgment seat and I condemned myself to perish, for I confess that had I been God, I could have done no other than send such a guilty creature as I was to the lowest hell. All the while, I had upon my mind a deep concern for the honor of God's name and the integrity of his moral government. I felt that it would not satisfy my conscience if I could be forgiven unjustly. The sin I had committed must be punished. But then there came the question, how could God be just and yet justify me who had been so guilty? Now the writer picks back up. He goes on to speak of a time Spurgeon does when he was walking abroad and described his thoughts as a vivid waking dream. He speaks of how he saw Jesus Christ murdered with his hands and feet torn by nails and his head pierced by thorns. The thought of Christ's suffering created in him horror and anger. He wondered how such a man who had done nothing but good to those around him could be so brutally killed. In his thoughts, he searched for the murderer, wanting nothing but to deal justice to whoever dared lay a finger on Christ. To his dismay, he found the murderer hiding in his own heart. Now the words of Spurgeon, I wept indeed that I, in the very presence of my murdered master, should be harboring the murderer. Spurgeon understood that his sins were responsible for the torment of Christ, but that knowledge did not bring peace. He became miserable, searching frantically for a way to rid himself of his sins. 
So I set off, Spurgeon wrote, determined to go round to all the chapels, and I went to all the places of worship. And though I dearly venerate the men who occupy those pulpits now, and did so then, I am bound to say that I never heard them once fully preach the gospel. I mean by that they preached truth, great truths, many good truths that were fitting to many of their congregations who were spiritually minded people. But what I wanted to know was, how can I get my sins forgiven? One Sunday, the weather interrupted his plans. A snowstorm blew up, and his mother, concerned for him, directed him to a primitive Methodist church that was only a short distance from their home. So with a heavy heart, he turned his collar against the plummeting, the pummeling icy wind and made his way through the cold streets to the church. The minister of that particular church could not make it that evening, so a layman got up and went to the pulpit to preach. He had nothing prepared but expounded in an awkward, clumsy manner from the passage in Isaiah 45. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. After a while, Spurgeon thought that the man had, all, had said all that he had to say, but was shocked when the man looked straight at him and addressed him. What he said changed the course of young Spurgeon's life forever. Young man, you look very miserable. And you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, you have nothing to do but to look and live. So it was at 15 years of age, Spurgeon finally was freed of his burden of sin by simply looking to Christ and was launched into a new life that would impact thousands long after his death in 1892. Appreciate your patience with that, but what freed Spurgeon of his sin more than 150 years ago is what frees sinners yet today, looking to Christ. The passage that that layman, that deacon, some have said, that stood in that church and spoke to a To an unsaved Charles Spurgeon is just a few chapters later from the text that we've taken this morning. And in the version in which that man read, look unto Jesus, the word was look, and it is indeed look. In the ESV, it translates it somewhat differently. Isaiah 45, verse 22, this was the passage that convicted and drew Spurgeon to look to Christ. In the ESV, it reads, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. The ESV's choice, we don't want to get into translation battles here today. I believe it, it's accurate to, to the Greek word because it, in it, it does infer a turning. But both look and turn capture the essence of what one must do in order to be saved, to have their sins forgiven. That is to turn and look to Christ. To look to Him. It has been, and it is today, and it always will be, the only remedy for sin is to look to Christ, to request forgiveness, and to beg forgiveness, and to repent of that sin, and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, I want to to present you from this passage, these four verses, this first of these four servant songs in Isaiah. I want to encourage you here today to look to Christ, to turn and look to Him. Look at Him. 
And if you're going to look at him, you're going to have to turn from what you might be presently looking at. You're going to have to turn your eyes from the world and set them upon Christ. And when you do this, you will find him a redeeming Savior, one who will forgive your sin. When you do this, you will find what Spurgeon found so many years ago and what countless others before him found and what countless since him have found. And if time goes on, what many others will yet find in him, they will find forgiveness for their sin, peace with God. That is what you'll find when you look to Christ. When you do this, when you look to Christ, you will see Him on the cross, enduring the shame and the betrayal and the pain of the cross for your sin. Yours. Not hidden any longer under the umbrella of the whole world or for all men's sin, but for yours. And when I was 11 years old, it was my sin that God convicted me of. Not the sin of the world, but mine. My sin that held Christ to the cross because of His love for me. Look to Christ is what Spurgeon was told, and it's what I want to echo to you today, and it is, by the way, what God said long before that man in that Methodist church said it to Spurgeon. So to you today, I echo the words of that man, and more importantly, I pray that we echo the words of God. Behold my servant. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, God says. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This passage, many, there's been a lot of ink spent trying to discern exactly who this passage is referring to many different ideas and thoughts. I think what is abundantly clear to me, anyhow, is that it's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, prior to his coming and yet clearly speaking of him. Jesus was and is many things. But key among them, especially in his humanity, Jesus was and is many things, but especially in His humanity, He was the servant of God. Sometimes that's, I think, something we don't fully wrestle with or consider. Because we think of Jesus as God, and we should rightly think of Jesus as God, because He is God. And yet, as a man, He was and is the servant of God. He said it Himself. In John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said, My food, that that sustains me, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. That was how Jesus saw Himself. One who was a servant of God. And I thought about that a little bit this morning, even on the way here. And how as a man, Jesus demonstrates to us what humanity is designed to be, a servant of God. He is the most uh, uh, pristine, he is the exact and the express image, as the Hebrew writer tells us, of God. And not only that, he is also the image of humanity as it is designed and intended to be, a servant of God. 
This is why, by the way, just as an aside here this morning, if you or you know someone who is like this, seeking their own will, trying to serve themselves and trying to heap up things for themselves and seeing their life as their own rather than a life that is to be spent in service to God, this is why they're broken. This is why they're empty, because as a human being, the intention, the design of humanity, the very thing that makes you human, one of them anyway, is that you are designed to be a servant of God. And if your life is broken and it's not what you feel it's supposed to be, then you need to really maybe perhaps start here. Is my life aligned to service to God? Now, God here provides for his people in all the world in Isaiah chapter 42, with a description of his servant so that the world would recognize them when he came. He's speaking some 700 years before Jesus took upon himself flesh and dwelt among men, but he is still telling God is us and his people at the time what to look for in his servant, the one he would uphold. Sadly, we know Most didn't recognize this servant of God when he came. Most missed him. Most did not see him for what he was. And most miss him today as well, it seems. Though God himself had told the people what they should be looking for in the Messiah through the prophets, through the scriptures, so many missed him. So many didn't look to him. So many didn't behold him, looking for something else, perhaps. If there is one thing that we must all do, it is to behold God's servant, to look to and look upon Jesus. God himself says to you today, do you understand that? When you read Isaiah chapter 42 and those first three words, it is God himself, the Father, the Lord of all creation, the one who spoke creation into existence. He says to you, behold my servant. Look at him, see him, consider him. I am here today as a messenger of this one who wrote this, and he says to you and to me, behold, my servant. Now, what do we see when we behold God's servant? That's what verses two through four tell us. And of course, all of the rest of scripture. And if I accomplish my task today, if I, if I accomplish what I am setting about to do this afternoon, this morning, it will be to call you to behold Christ, the servant of God. To behold Him, to see Him, to set your spiritual eyes upon Him, to set your heart and your mind upon Him. If I had a second goal in mind, and mind you, it's a second goal far distant from that first one though, it is to show all of us who do know the Lord to follow Christ and want to follow Christ how we ought to follow the pattern of the servant, our Lord. If we desire to be a servant of God, And it's probably a good idea for us to pattern ourselves after the example of the definite article, servant Jesus Christ. We, you and I, will never be the servant, but we can be a servant. And we should be. And if we do choose to be a servant of God, then surely, as we've said, looking to the servant's example is the best place to look if we desire to meet with success. If we desire to 
to become humble, to become meek, to be obedient, to be loving, to be compassionate, to be true, to have the fruits of the Spirit. If we desire these things in our life, then surely looking to our Lord, surely beholding God's servant, Jesus Christ, surely beholding this captain of our salvation offers us the best chances of success. Looking to yourself will never work. Looking to yourself will never work. We will never find in our own hearts what we need, no matter how intently, how deeply, or how diligently we might look. You can search the depths of your own heart apart from God. It is wretched, it is wicked, and it, you yourself can't even know it, according to Jeremiah seventeen nine. You can look there for all your life, wondering and trying to find how to be a servant of God, how even to live this life. You're not going to find it there. So let me save you some time, some very precious time. If you are looking inward to yourself, you'll not find what you're looking for there. Because it's simply not there. Or, maybe the other side of the coin, let me save others a significant and very precious amount of time. You'll not find what you're looking for outwardly in the world either. It's not there. You can look and you can dig and you can search and you can apply yourself as as Solomon said he did to all the pleasures of the world and you're going to come away with that and say it's what he did. It's like the wind. Just It's just here and it's gone and it's empty and it's vain. So where must one look to be a servant of God, to be like this servant that God himself is talking about, my servant? speaking specifically of Jesus. How is it? Where are we to look and how are we to do that? Where to look to Him? Now, looking to others who have advanced, who have advanced beyond perhaps your spiritual condition, looking to others who have advanced beyond your own walk with Christ, that's good and it can be helpful. And I believe we are called to be examples to one another. That is good. But if they are advancing, if you know somebody in your life who has advanced to, to more with a closer walk with Christ, and uh, there have been many in my life, and I, there's a few in my names, in names that are running even now through my head. I, I dare not mention them, though, because I don't want to exalt them, and they would not want me to either. But I have had people in my life that I have looked at, and I thought, Lord, how and what must it be like to walk so close with you like they appear to, and like they seem to legitimately and sincerely do? I want to be like that, Father. I want to be with you. And so having others in our life that we look to, that we can be encouraged by, that's a good thing. But you know what's even better? Follow their gaze and look to what they're looking at. Follow what they're looking at and rest your eyes upon Him. Follow what they have shown you in their life. And it's like somebody, if you were to walk down the street and you saw somebody who was just standing still, looking straight up, I guarantee you nine out of ten people, if not ten out of ten, would stop and look up at what that person was looking at. That's how we ought to look at those who are following Christ and have a measure of spiritual maturity in their life to look at what they're looking at, not them. Notice them. I hope and I pray that God's children are servants of Him in such a way that people notice there's something they're looking at that I don't see, but that they quickly then are told, oh, 
Oh, don't look at me. Look at what I'm looking at. Behold my servant, God says. Singular. Look at him. Just as Charles Spurgeon was encouraged so many years ago, look to him. Turn to him. Of all the problems we face in our lives, the most dire problem of them all is not obeying God when he tells us to behold my servant. That might sound like hyperbole. Exaggeration. No, that's not the biggest problem in my life. I don't know what you're talking about. You must not have very many problems. I can assure you that it the biggest concern that you should have is not your bank account. It's not your job. It's not your friends. It's not even your health. The biggest concern that ought to always be within you is am I looking to Christ? Am I beholding the servant of God? That's it. When I wake in the morning and I have a long list of things to do, Is at the very top of that and intermingling through it all, looking to my Savior, to Christ. Setting my mind and my heart and indeed my eyes upon His Word and upon wholesome good things that remind me of Him. To set my thoughts even upon Him. That's the greatest and the biggest concern that you ought to have in your life. Are you obeying these three simple words? Behold, my servant. He goes on in verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. God says, behold him. And when you do, this is what you're going to find. This is how my servant is going to be. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. This, by the way... Quite different from what the Jews were expecting, is it not? The Jews in the time of Christ were looking for an earthly Messiah who would throw off the Roman bondage and establish a free Jewish state once again and restore the kingdom to the days of Solomon and David and so that the world might see who they were and make much of them a Messiah whose voice and their minds would thunder in the streets of Jerusalem, a Messiah who would be a conquering king shouting his name from the mountaintops. That's what they were expecting. A Messiah who would roar as the lion of the tribe of Judah and leave Rome and all the armies of the world trembling in fear and awe. That's what they were looking for. But God says, behold, my servant, he will not lift up his voice or cry out in the streets. The way they were expecting the servant of God to come is not at all how he came and it's not at all how God said he would come. You know, one of the greatest dangers any preacher faces, or anyone for that matter, sharing with someone the gospel message, but particularly a preacher as he stands from week to week in the pulpit, one of the greatest dangers and one of the greatest mistakes he can make is to give a false view of God and of Christ. To set the wrong expectation of God in the minds and hearts of those who hear him. It's a sobering, thing to think that it can be done and no doubt is done. This is why the preacher must always be laser focused on the scripture. He must not think for a moment that he knows better than God himself how to speak to his creation. 
And God says, behold, my servant, he's not going to lift up his voice and he's not going to cry aloud in the street. What does he mean? Well, we see it lived out in Jesus' life in the Gospels. Jesus did not go around demanding and compelling others to follow him like a conquering king, did he? He didn't. He did not drag those whom he conquered into his service. He did not pry them away from their wives and children, throw armor on them and place a sword in their hands and compel them to fight for him as kings in that day did. It's not how Jesus went about his service to God. That's not how God's servant acted when he came. God's servant did not force others to join him. He did not make a show. He did not walk through the streets with a proud look. He did not stride into the towns and villages that he visited with an air of a triumphant king, though he certainly was. God says, behold, my servant, he'll not raise his voice. Instead, what God says, we find Jesus to be a man who didn't lift up his voice to make it heard in the street. He did not talk because he liked to hear himself talk, as so many do. He did not teach with an air of superiority, though he was and is superior to us all. I think that I love that passage in Mark. I just read it this past week in my daily reading again. I believe it was this week or some recent reading that they went away astounded the way he, he taught. And it says specifically, it wasn't like the scribes. Something about the way he taught. Something unique in this servant of God that marked him, but it was not pomp and circumstance. It was not richly robes of a king. It was not how an earthly king would act. Yes, he called and invited. Oh, of course he did. That's why he came. He besought people to come. He was continually drawing men and women and petitioning them to forsake all and follow him. Yes, indeed he was. But he did all of that in order to save them, not to impress them. God calls to you to save you. God says, behold my servant so that you would see him. And all that Jesus did was to save that that was lost from, through sin and rebellion. This is how the servant still comes to you today and to people today. He comes in the stillness of your own heart. Behold my servant, God says. He will not raise his voice. He comes in the stillness of your own heart. He comes and speaks to you personally. He calls you to repentance and faith. His whispering in your heart somehow overpowers the noise of the world and you hear it as clearly as you hear your own thoughts in your own mind. But he comes inwardly to you. He's not going to raise his voice in the streets. He's not going to make a big scene externally. Of course, those things are going to happen. But when he comes, when God says, behold, my servant, this is how he is going to come. As he comes to you in this way, for all you know, no one else is hearing him. He's not shouting in the street. He's whispering in your heart. You can't tell if others are hearing him or not. And ultimately, you don't really care. It doesn't matter. 
because you know he's speaking to you, the servant of God. Behold my servant. And as you hear him, and as you sense his presence, and as he speaks truth to your heart, it's inwardly. And there are outward manifestations that result from that inward voice, but it's an inward voice. It's quiet. Friend, behold the servant, look to Christ, turn to Christ and live. This is how he comes to us all. Now, I feel it's important to mention before we move on, there is going to be a day, his second coming, that will be unlike his first. God the Father Isaiah chapter 42, Behold my servant, I believe he's speaking of his first coming. But there is going to be a day when the Lord's voice is heard and all who have rejected him will tremble. There will be a day when his arrival will be seen, heard, and felt by every human being that has ever drawn breath in this life. Whether they've lived whether it was Adam or whether it's the last young man or woman that is born into the world, every last one of us will be together. This is the great evener. This is the great leveling of the playing field between men is this reality that we will hear him the second time that he comes. Absolutely every one of us. Revelation 5, 11 and 12. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Revelation 1:15. His voice was like the roar of many waters speaking of this the servant of God, of Christ, the Lord. I was curious because I went to Revelation looking for some of these passages and thought there would be some to to find there. And and I couldn't but go a few verses at a time. And and there were other verses. I could stand here today and quote many of them. The word voice, the hearing of a voice, This occurs 186 times in 163 verses in the 22 chapters of Revelation. There are a total of 404 verses in Revelation. 186 of them include the idea of a voice that's speaking. That's 40%. Four out of ten verses in in Revelation is talking about what we're going to hear. And it's going to be known. And it's going to be heard. In fact, the words loud voice occurs 115 times. So we must recognize that God is speaking to us here in Isaiah 42 about his servant when he comes the first time as a child born into a manger in a quiet and small town of Bethlehem, which is how he comes to us still today individually. But never forget that that quietness of the first coming is going to be followed by the thunderous roar of his return. Tolkien's The Return of the King brushes only the surface of what that day is will be like. So listen to the quiet voice of the servant now and heed it. Obey him, repent and believe so that when you hear him thundering through the streets on that great day, 
When you hear His thundering voice on that day, that is yet ahead of all of us, you will add your voice in worship and praise and joy and not fear, trembling and despair, so that you will shout the praises of God from the mountaintops rather than call for those same mountains to fall on you and hide you from this one who is thundering through the earth in judgment. Listen to the servant today. And I want to encourage you with what verses 3 and 4 say, and then we'll be, we'll be finished. A bruised reed, verse 3, he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. For anyone who understands who they are before this servant, God's servant, Jesus Christ, for anyone who understands who they are next to him, This verse is cause for great, unending, overflowing joy and praise and peace and happiness and all of those things that we long for. The servant servant isn't looking for great men. The servant of God, Jesus Christ, is not looking for great men and women. He knows they don't exist. He knows, of course, what the Spirit inspired the writers in the Old Testament to write when they said, nobody's righteous, not one. We've all turned and gone astray. And Jesus does not waste a minute's time looking for what he knows is not there. And it says a bruised reed, he will not break. And that's wonderful good news. Do you want to know why? Because every last one of us is a bruised reed. You are and I am. Bruised and broken. And the servant, God says, my servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not going to bruise, he's not going to break a bruised reed. Servant is not looking for greatness in men. He is not searching for those who don't see their brokenness. He's seeking those who believe their lives are burning brightly and and independently only because of him. We read this in the pulpit commentary. The image represents the weak and depressed in spirit, the lowly and dejected. Christ would deal tenderly with such, not violently. The wick which burns dimly, he shall not quench. Where the flame of devotion burns at all, however feebly and dimly, Messiah will take care not to quench it. Rather, he will tend it and trim it and give it fresh oil and cause it to burn more brightly. If you feel broken, then I rejoice with you in your brokenness because the servant will not break a bruised reed. If you are broken today, then you are in a place that you can hear the servant and have him mend mend you and, and fix what is broken in you. It's the one who feels their life burning, but dimly that the servant came to brighten. One of the greatest dangers men face is thinking that they are unbroken without Christ and that they see when they are blind, that they're in a world of light when they're existing and living in a world of darkness. 
That's great danger that men are in. There is joy in understanding how tenderly the servant deals with those who are broken. The mighty Son of God who commands the legions of angels that we just read about. Myriads of myriads. Thousands of thousands. I believe one of which could have come and easily taken him off the cross and overwhelmed the Roman army and all together of the armies of the world. And here the Son of God who commands them all is tender and compassionate. You think there's a reason God says to us, shouting to us almost, I think, behold my servant, see him and look at him. He will not, bre- he will not break a bruised reed. You know, we are missing something today. I thought about this and I want to share it briefly. There, there is something we're missing today in masculinity, in manhood. We, we've thrown it out. For, for all kinds of reasons, it seems. I don't want to get on a soapbox here, but I, I think it's true. The, the idea of masculinity is, is somehow evil today. But God has created us that way. And that's regrettable that we've lost that. But we should never forget that the servant of God, Jesus Christ, though powerful beyond imagination, is gentle with those who are broken. He could have, with a mere word, leveled every soldier in the army of Rome. But with a bruised reed, he's gentle. And he'll not break it. If you're broken, I I beg you to look to God's servant. He's not going to break you. He's going to fix you. He's going to hold you tenderly. Let us, even today, as we think of masculinity in our time, and we've lost the whole idea of gender, or we're trying to, but let us not overcorrect with a masculinity that does not also hold meekness, gentleness, and kindness. All of these things held in strength. Man, as he is who God has made him to be, held in, in some sense of strength, strength, but held in brokenness. And all of those things, the gentleness, the meekness, the kindness, held in the midst of that strength, which adds to them and does not take away from them. What a servant we are to model in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Some of the most precious scenes in Scripture for me are seeing the Son of God with children in the one scene, but with the broken, the helpless, the unimportant, the cast out. You want to know why that's precious to me? Because it's a picture of what the servant does with me. A broken, bruised reed, but he will not break it. He will mend it. He will not grow faint, verse 4, or be discouraged till he established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. If ever there was a man who had cause to faint and be discouraged, surely it was God's servant, Jesus Christ. In the eyes of man, I should say. Think of all that he endured. The betrayal. The the lack of understanding of even those closest to him, 
the separation from God in, in, in a sense of his being here and not there. The, the Pharisees, as they would ridicule, and then, of course, all of the things that attended the cross. But God says, behold, my servant, he will not faint. He will not be discouraged. He did not become then faint or discouraged in his walk during his earthly ministry. And what was his charge? As we bring our remarks toward a close today, his charge, it said in verse 4, to establish justice. That was, that's the servant's charge. Behold, my servant, God says, we will see a man establishing justice. And that word justice is a tricky one. It's one we most often or we frequently think as soon as we hear it that we know what's being referred to and talked about. But there's a lot of nuance to that word. And in the Greek, as we try to unravel its root and understand what it is saying We find these definitions. Justice is a verdict. It's a verdict. It's a sentence or a formal decree. The servant of God came to the earth to establish a verdict, to call for one. The servant was sent to establish a verdict in the world, to enact a decree and sentence from God, the judgment against sin and wickedness, against corruption, jealousy, envy, adultery, dishonesty, all the things that are contrary to God and His law. The servant came to establish a verdict around. The justice established, even as we read here, as far as the coastlands, that's not just thrown in. It has a meaning in that verse. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This idea is that it would be in places far removed and far beyond Jerusalem, not merely there, but all through the world, that justice is established everywhere is what this servant is going to do. Intended again to speak of these faraway places. It's not just justice in Jerusalem, but the whole world. Jew, Gentile, barbarian, slave, free, rich, poor, white, black, famous, infamous, young, old, religious, pagan. It doesn't matter. He's not going to grow weary. He's not going to faint until he establishes this verdict for all the world. Behold my servant, God says. Look to him. And so we say again, as that man so many years ago said to Charles Haddon Spurgeon, look to Christ, turn to him. And more importantly, even of course than that man's words, God's word himself, behold my servant. He comes quietly now. He comes quietly now. He said that to us. He's not going to raise his voice. He's not going to cry out in the street. He comes quietly now and bids you to follow. He will come someday soon with the roar of many waters to execute judgment on the earth. But now he comes quietly. He will deal kindly with you. Listen, if you hold on to one thing, I pray that this might be that one thing. This servant of God He 
He didn't break you when he convicted you. He showed you you were already broken. He doesn't break. He mends. He doesn't condemn. He forgives. You say, well, that's odd. Jesus said it himself, came not to condemn the world. Condemns, the world's already condemned. I don't have to do it, the servant says. It's already condemned. I came to seek and to save that which is lost. He will mend what's broken in your heart. He will not snuff out the light of your life. He will cause it to burn more brightly than it has ever burned before. You ever heard somebody's testimony and they said something like this? Everything looked brighter. I've heard that a number of times. Everything looked brighter. It's because the servant trimmed the wick and the flame burns brighter than, of life burns brighter than it ever had before. He, he did not and does not grow faint and or discouraged. All that he intends to do, he will do according to God when he says to us, behold, my servant. So I beg you today, behold the servant of God. See him as God himself describes him today. If you are lost, look and live. If you are saved, keep looking, living, and show him more clearly to those around you what God said about him. It's good for us to tell others what God has done for us. That is a wonderful thing. We ought to. We're encouraged to. But may we never be too far distant from telling others about Christ and about God and His servant, Jesus Christ the Lord, with the words of how God describes Him. Don't, too, don't stray too far from that. But do indeed tell the world what God has done for you in your life, your individual circumstances. Tell the world about this servant of God who has forgiven you, freed you from the shackles of sin, set you on a road that is going to end in heaven for eternity. Tell the world, shout it from the mountaintops. But be sure ever and always to be speaking words that are true and consistent to how God himself describes his servant. Behold my servant. I pray we all will do that today. Let's have some.